Our second Bible reading is Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd be grateful if you could keep that page open so we can all continue looking at those verses during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray for God's help. Jeremiah says to God in Jeremiah chapter 15, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Father, we pray that like Jeremiah, we would have an appetite for your words. Would they come to us now by your Spirit? And would they be our joy and our heart's delight? We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thursday is Thanksgiving Day, and many of us are already looking forward to eating roast turkey. If you've ever been in charge of cooking the turkey on Thanksgiving, you'll know that is no easy task, particularly in a Manhattan kitchen. Things can go wrong. If the turkey's frozen, it needs to thaw out in time. It might not fit in the oven along with all the other things that need to go in the oven. And it might never get fully cooked deep into the middle. If you're on the eating side of proceedings instead of the cooking side, you might take it for granted that your plate will be filled with perfectly cooked turkey on Thursday. But you can't assume that will happen. Things can go wrong. Freshly roasted turkey slices don't materialize out of the air. They're the outcome of a good procedure. Only a good step-by-step -step procedure will ensure that properly cooked turkey makes it onto your plate. Today's Bible passage is about spiritual growth. 
which, rather like turkey on Thanksgiving, is something people often assume will just show up in their life, even though, in reality, things can go wrong. Growth can be thwarted. Things can go wrong that stop spiritual growth happening as it should. With turkey cooking, there's a procedure that needs to be followed, and it's similar with spiritual growth. God has laid down a procedure for the church to put into action. Look at the multi-step process set out in verses 11 and 12. And he, that is Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul wants the church to be built up so that we're not spiritual pipsqueaks. But for that to happen, there's a God-given procedure that needs to be followed. In those verses I just read, there are steps leading to the end goal of growth. And for the rest of the sermon, we're going to think first about that end goal, the target we're aiming at. What is spiritual growth? What's the difference between a church that's immature and a church that's well-built, spiritually speaking? We'll then move on from the target to the threat. It's because of this threat that we can't take spiritual growth for granted. Like a turkey that's semi-cooked and hardly edible, real Christians can go through life without growing as they should. There's a threat to growth. And then we'll finish with the tactics. God has set out tactics for getting the turkey of spiritual growth cooked and onto the plate of our lives, if you see what I mean. So let's begin then with the target. Paul speaks of the church being built up until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a long verse. In brief, Paul wants the church to grow in maturity until it reaches the full maturity of Christ. We can probably all think of a family we know who have a door in their house that has lots of pencil lines on it and notes next to the pencil lines saying something like Sophie aged 5, Sophie aged 12, Sophie aged 18. And very near the five-year-old Sophie line, there's another line with a note saying Lucy, aged five. And very near the 12-year-old Sophie line, there's a note saying Lucy, aged 12. But there's no line yet for Lucy, aged 18, because she's still just 12. And 12-year-old Lucy is several inches shorter than the line for her 18-year-old sister Sophie. But Lucy can look up to that line that 18-year-old Sophie line, with the reasonable expectation that she'll end up close to it. In the language of verse 13, Lucy can expect to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Sophie. Well, like Lucy desiring to measure up to the full height of Sophie, the church's desire should be to measure up to the full height 
of Christ. Although, of course, our aim isn't physical height, it's spiritual stature, spiritual maturity. Verse 13 should make us think we're not yet fully grown because we don't yet measure up to the Jesus line on the door. We don't yet have his spiritual stature. Later in the passage, Paul returns to the same thought, the same picture. He says in verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Jesus has left a line on the door and our aim is to grow in maturity until we reach that line. Now let's remind ourselves at this point that Paul is writing to believers, the believers, about spiritual growth. He's not talking about salvation. He's not saying, unless you reach the Jesus line on the door, you won't be saved. No, he's talking about already saved believers growing in maturity. So please don't think if you're listening today as a non-Christian, whether here or perhaps listening online, thank you for listening. But please don't think Christianity is about trying to become more and more like Jesus so that eventually you'll get close enough for God to say you've done it. You're good enough to live with me forever. You're saved. That's not Christianity. The message of Christianity is that anyone can be saved, no matter who they are or what they've done. Anyone can be saved simply through trusting in Jesus. When he died on the cross, he paid the punishment price for sin. And when he rose from the dead, he showed there was no longer any price to pay. When he died on the cross, he paid the punishment price for sin. When he rose from the dead, he showed there was nothing left to pay. Trust in him if you haven't yet done so, if you're listening as a non-Christian. Trust in him for the salvation he offers. That salvation Today's passage is about what happens next for saved believers in Jesus. It tells us what our target should be for the remainder of our lives in this world. The target is to grow up in every way into Christ, into his likeness. I don't know any Christian who would say they've actually hit that target. They've reached the Jesus line on the door. But that's the target we've been given. We're not to settle for anything less. Paul drives home the point with three words in verse 15, in every way. We're to grow up into Christ in every way. Those words in every way bring to mind the full range of Jesus' character, the character we need to grow up into. For example, on the one hand, Jesus was generous. No one has ever been more generous than Jesus. And yet, in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, ask him to perform a a miraculous sign, he refuses to give them one. So he was a generous person who also knew when it would be better not to be generous. Here's another example of the range of his character. Jesus faithfully obeyed the cultural commands of the law of Moses, which were designed to separate Israel from the other nations. And yet, without breaking the law of Moses, he reached out to a non-Jewish Samaritan woman 
asking her to give him a drink of water and then getting into conversation with her. She's so surprised, she almost drops the water pitcher that she's carrying. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? It shows the range of his character. He kept the commands, separating him from the nations while also lovingly reaching out to the nations. It was similar with Jesus' obedience of God's moral commands. Peter, a constant companion of Jesus for three years, said of Jesus, he committed no sin. But Jesus didn't achieve that moral purity by isolating himself from the world, isolating himself from sinful people. No, we're told in Luke 7, verse 34, that Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. And then on the one hand, Jesus was compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. But on the other hand, when it was necessary, he was a fighter. According to John's gospel, when Jesus drove the money changers and animal sellers out of the temple, he used a whip to do that. I wonder if you've ever noticed that detail. Imagine a man coming at you with a whip, lashing the air around your head. You'd run for cover, wouldn't you? And imagine if you didn't run for cover. Imagine if you lingered for a while trying to gather up your money from the, the table and then the man comes over, takes hold of the side of the table and turns it over, sending it crashing to the floor with the money scattering everywhere. If you were in the shoes of those money changers and animal sellers, you'd know you were up against a serious fighter. Jesus had that in his character alongside the compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He knew force would be necessary to purify the temple, and he used force. Jesus was a hard worker, but he also knew how to rest. He declared a terrifying judgment on the city of Jerusalem, but he wept while he did so. He demonstrated astonishing bravery, going willingly to his death on the cross for our sake, but earlier in his ministry he was cautious, staying out of harm's way. I could go on. But I hope the point is clear by now. Jesus' character displays the full range of admirable, excellent qualities. And we're called in verse 15 to grow up into Christ in every way. Isn't it exhilarating to have Jesus as our growth goal? Life would get very stale if we settled down in our personal character comfort zone, never extending our range of the good qualities God wants us to have. Progress is possible. Progress in the great adventure of becoming more like Jesus. Today's passage is filled with hope and expectation that God's people will grow toward Christ-likeness. Progress is possible. But progress isn't guaranteed, and that brings us to the next part of the sermon, the threat. The threat. Please look down with me to verse 14, where Paul sets out the alternative to growth, the alternative he wants his readers to avoid. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In verse 14, that verse I've just read, Paul uses children 
as a negative example, which is unusual. We're more familiar with children being used as a positive illustration in the Bible. Just this past Wednesday in our community group, uh, in our Bible study, we were looking at Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The point there is that children are very good at receiving things. God offers membership of his eternal kingdom as an unearned gift. And we should receive that gift of kingdom membership like an eager child receiving gifts on Christmas Day. Hallelujah! Salvation is a gift to be received instead of a wage to be worked for. Hallelujah! But once again, we have to remind ourselves that here in Ephesians 4, the topic is spiritual growth rather than salvation. And when it comes to spiritual growth, children are used as a negative example. Paul says in verse 14 that he doesn't want his readers to be children anymore. The big point of verse 14 is that false teaching leads people astray. False teaching is the enemy of spiritual growth. And Paul uses children as his negative example because children are easily led astray. We have to tell them, never get in a stranger's car. Never get into a stranger's car because otherwise there's a good chance they would get into a stranger's car. They're easily led astray. Think of certain Arctic-related traditions to do with a holiday coming up later in the year. I'm choosing my words carefully. We tell children those traditions and they believe them. It's harmless. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But it is evidence that children are very persuadable. Paul doesn't want believers to be children when false teaching comes along. Paul doesn't want believers to be children swallowing whatever they're told. Then Paul quickly changes the illustration from children to a boat on a storm-tossed sea. Paul had first-hand experience of an out-of-control boat in a storm. You can read about that in Acts chapter 27. It's a gripping account of the shipwreck Paul experienced on his way from Israel to Rome. Read Acts 27 and you'll see that a boat in a storm can end up anywhere. Through the grace of God, the ship Paul was on ran aground just off the island of Malta, but without God's help, it could have been broken into pieces in the middle of the sea. A sailboat in a storm is vulnerable to unpredictable winds. Paul doesn't want believers to be like that, to be blown in one direction by one doctrinal error and then blown in another direction by a different doctrinal error. According to the end of verse 14, there are cunning people ready and waiting. They won't hesitate to use crafty false teaching to influence immature believers. That's a huge threat to growth. The Christian tossed from one kind of false teaching to another kind of false teaching is a Christian who isn't growing. If you've ever had a false teaching phase in your own Christian life, when you were led to believe wrong things about God or about salvation or about the Bible or about the church, you'll know how damaging it was for you. You'll be able to remember that. You'll know that you didn't grow spiritually during that phase in your Christian life. 
Well, let's now move on to the third part of the sermon. God has not left us to be vulnerable children or ships on a storm-tossed sea. God has tactics for growth. That's our third heading, tactics. There are tactics to bring about spiritual growth. There is a God-given procedure that should be followed so that we'll grow up toward that Jesus line on the door. We can tell that Paul's instructions in this passage are going to be very weighty and significant because there's a kind of drum roll in verses 7 through 10. A drum roll leading up to the main teaching which comes in the next paragraph, verses 11 through 16. Paul uses a verse from the Old Testament to set the stage for what he's about to say. The verse he uses is from Psalm 68. We heard it earlier in our first Bible reading. It's a magnificent verse picturing the Messiah ascending into heaven. Please look down with me to verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul then adds a bit of commentary on that verse in the next couple of verses. I'll read from verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul's commentary makes the vision of Jesus in verse 8 even more magnificent, because Paul points out that an ascent can only happen if there was previously a descent. The Jesus in these verses is a champion who has claimed all space, all territory, through his presence, like, a, like an early 20th century explorer planting a flag on the South Pole. Not only that, he's also taken his enemies captive and he's given gifts to his people. What a vision of Jesus. A Bible scholar named Frank Thielman says this about those verses 7 through 10. The Christ who is powerful enough to conquer the enemies of God's people in every corner of the universe is also the Christ who equips God's people to fulfill their destiny. End quote. Paul includes this magnificent vision of Jesus in his letter to reinforce what's about to come, instructions for spiritual growth. As we'll see, gifts are central to these instructions and Paul portrays Jesus as the mighty gift giver to prepare us, drumroll style, for what's about to come. That drumroll leads to a guide to growth in verses 11 through 16. And the big idea in those verses is that Jesus gives leaders to God's people to equip them so that each one of them will use his or her gifts to build up the whole church. I'll say that again. The big idea in Paul's guide to growth is that Jesus gives leaders to God's people to equip them so that each one of them will use his or her gifts to build up the whole church. 
that big idea can be broken down into several tactics and for the remainder of the sermon we'll look briefly at each tactic before closing with a simple application for our lives. The first tactic is leaders. Let's look down please to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Bible commentators agree that there are four different kinds of leaders in that verse. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then one final category, pastors and teachers, or pastor-teachers. Pastor-teachers are one category rather than two, which is easier to see in the original language, but it does still come across in our English translation because each the introduces a new category and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now earlier in Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul describes the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church, which suggests those roles were time limited. A building's foundation doesn't go all the way up through the building. It's limited to the beginning of the building. Similarly, the apostles and prophets had a time-limited initial role. That fits with what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul seems to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's the last of the apostles. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told not to expect God to speak as he did in Old Testament times through a long succession of prophets. So, if the apostles and prophets were time-limited, that leaves the evangelists and pastor teachers. Evangelists are people who share the good news with unbelievers, so that category would include Billy Graham-style evangelists working as itinerant preachers going from place to place, and also missionaries dedicated to sharing the good news about Jesus with those who don't yet know him. That's the evangelist role. The role of pastor teacher is the work of looking after local churches, which includes both pastoring, which means shepherding, overseeing the flock, exercising church discipline if necessary, and also teaching. These leaders are Jesus' gifts to the church. Evangelists and pastor teachers are there as the first tactic leading to spiritual growth. All through the Bible we see that God's people need and benefit from a God-given layer of spiritual leadership. We can't expect spiritual growth to happen in the church without reliable leaders. Verse 16 is a parallel verse to verses 11 and 12 and verse 16 talks about the whole body being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped and those joints probably correspond to the evangelists and pastor teachers back in verse 11 That's the first tactic. 
The second tactic is the equipping of all God's people. The equipping of all God's people. And that's when the first tactic, the giving of leaders, the second tactic is when those leaders do the job of equipping God's people with all that they need for the work of ministry, verse 12. The work of ministry, which in some translations is the work of service, the work of serving the church in many different ways for building up the body of Christ. And that equipping of God's people, the second tactic, will mainly happen through teaching. Not only through teaching, but mainly through teaching. All the jobs in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, all the jobs are word jobs. They all have that element of proclaiming God's word. We need to remember the danger. Verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There is a lot of false teaching. There always has been. And that is countered by evangelists and pastor teachers proclaiming the truth. By proclaiming the truth, they equip God's people so that they will be able to resist God's teaching. It's not the only way in which evangelists and pastor teachers equip God's people, but it is the vital way in which they equip them. Then the third tactic, having been equipped, God's people then do the work of ministry, the work of service for building up the body of Christ. And that will look very different according to each individual member of the church and how their gifts are released and used for the benefit of others. Two things we need to note. The growth here is the growth of all the church, not just our own personal individual growth, although that's very important. And so our aim is to look around and see all the members of the church growing, so that the church as a whole grows. So we should be thinking about how our own individual gifts, the contributions we can make, will lead to the growth of others in the church, and not just our own growth. The second point to note is the emphasis on love. It's there in verse 16, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And it's also there earlier in verse 15, where it says, rather speaking the truth in love. And because of that note of love, if we feel we have a gift that we really want to use, but others in the church don't seem to want us to use that particular gift and don't seem to think it would be helpful for the church, then we shouldn't insist on using that gift that we want to use because others are suggesting that it actually won't be loving for you to use this gift that isn't needed at this point of time in the church. There are some times when those difficult conversations need to be had when someone wants to use a gift they think they have, but it won't 
serve the church in love. And so we may need to hold back on a gift we personally want to use out of love for the benefit of the church. We may need to be steered towards a work of service that we don't find perhaps quite as desirable as another work of service and we do it out of love to build up the whole church. One simple application for us to finish with. Align your life with God's tactics. Align your life with God's tactics for spiritual growth. Tom Oates, who preached for us last Sunday, very kindly took me out to lunch earlier this week. And uh, at one point in our conversation, he was talking about his children and he said that he and Susie had one aim, one hope for his children. And it was something that they had told them along the way. And that was, I wrote it down, all we want for you is to serve in a good local church, making a contribution, whether financial or another kind of contribution, strengthening the church Sunday by Sunday. Or in brief, all we want for you, Tom Oates to his children, is for you to serve in a good local church. That's a very interesting aim for parents to have for their children. But doesn't it fit well with this Bible passage we've been learning from today? If his children are serving in a good, faithful, reliable local church, they will have aligned their lives with God's tactics for spiritual growth. And as a parent, what a wonderful thing that is to see for your children. Align your life with God's tactics. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the mighty gift giver. We thank you for the great gift of salvation. We thank you also that having been saved, we are not left as children, we are not left as storm-tossed boats, but we are given gifts by the Lord Jesus for our spiritual growth. Help us, Heavenly Father, to align our lives with your tactics for growth. For Jesus' sake. Amen.